Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with the former editor-in-chief for Details Magazine and author of the new book, As Needed for Pain, Dan Paris. Thanks for joining me today, Dan. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, man, I, I want to dive right in to your new book, As Needed for Pain. And this is all about your struggle with opioid addiction, correct? That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. All right. So, what was life like before you actually found your way into recovery? Oh, man. Before I found my way into recovery, life was challenging, lonely terrifying um i was in a constant state of of fear i was constantly high i was taking pills from the moment i woke up in the morning to the moment i i can't even say went to sleep but ultimately just sort of knocked myself out okay wow Wow. Yeah. You know, I heard uh, someone in a 12 step meeting one time and I identified with this immediately say, you know, people were talking about triggers and stuff like that. And he said his trigger was opening his eyes in the morning. (laughs) That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. I mean, you know, and, and it got to a point pretty quickly, if I'm being honest, where I really didn't need triggers. It just became the, the, the chemical makeup, you know, I just needed them. And, and of course I craved the high, but, but ultimately it was really, you know, maintenance just for me to be able to feel like I had the energy to go about my day. Right. Because that's the great sort of myth. This is how powerful the addiction is. I was convinced and, and this is true of so many people, this is certainly not just me, that I actually needed that, those pills to fuel my body. I was convinced more than food, more than water, more than rest, more than anything else, that these pills were my fuel, that they were giving me the energy to go through my day. Hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So my drug of choice, if you will, at the end of the day, ended up being pain, pain pills. And, and I think you were kind of talking about this on social media the other day, like, thank God, I definitely thought about stepping up to the next logical thing for for a lot of people, which unfortunately is heroin. And I, I didn't like I think you didn't either. But yeah, I never thought about it directly like that it being fuel. But that's exactly what it was in my mind, because I couldn't even even if I wasn't going through withdrawals, I mean, I couldn't even function. I couldn't get off the couch. You know, I could barely 
pick up my phone to send a text message or something. So, so how did all of this start? How, how did you start taking the pills? Like what, what was the, uh, the progression with all of that? You know, it's a fairly common tale, right? I injured myself. Now, I injured myself doing something stupid and embarrassing, which I'll tell you about in a second. But I injured myself. I ended up needing to have surgery, a very routine uh, procedure on my back. I was prescribed opiates along the way. And for me, ultimately, it was like lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. You know, I mean, it really was. But to circle back, I, listen, I, I was, was never comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. I was never felt like one of the guys. I never felt like I fit in. And so in my middle 20s, trying to impress a woman whom I didn't even know, by the way, I inexplicably decided to do a cartwheel in the lobby of an office building in in downtown Manhattan. Okay. And I came crashing down on this marble floor. Oh, man. And I I injured my back. And um, it's just, uh, you know, I wish it were a different story. I really do. But, but... I, you know, I, I, you know, that's what happened. And I, I ended up needing back surgery. And like I said, you know, took these pills and more or less was off to the races. Okay. And and so was there anything, you know, like for my story and, and a lot of other people, there's, you know, in retrospect, like once we get to kind of look back on this stuff with, with a little different perspective, so to speak, we can kind of see like, okay, yeah, you know, there were some things, there were some clues that maybe I I should have seen like, yeah, I should have been more careful taking those pills or because you're saying it it seems like a fuse was lit. Looking back, was there, were there any signs that like, maybe you should have been a little more cautious with something like that? Or, Or was it just like, I hadn't done anything in excess before the pills came into the picture it was a good fit. And then I was doing my thing. Uh, You know, listen, I, I, um, smoked a lot of pot and played around with a couple of other drugs, nothing to excess. Okay. Um, I drank, I think like anyone else might in their early twenties. I, I, I don't know that I drank alcoholically. I certainly today, identify as an alcoholic there's no question about it but uh, for me i think i i finally felt at home for the first time once i got these pills in my system and and i don't mean to romanticize it because that's not what i'm doing but at the time i felt um whole and and i had never really felt whole you know and and so you know these pills did something to me that i wasn't able to achieve on my own um living you know what what many might refer to as a healthy normal life yeah um and so it progressed very quickly with me uh but there's also you know um 
I think anyone that is exposed to these pills for even a finite period of time of consistent use is going to become dependent on them. Sure. And, uh, and so like those people, I became dependent on them, but then I developed a, a massive addiction to them as well uh, and, and couldn't stop taking them. And, and really, um, you know, they were as important to me, if not more important to me than, than anything else in my life. So it sounds like what you're touching on a little bit, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but there are people, anyone can get addicted to drugs like this, physically dependent, right? But to me, what you're saying is, you know, it filled that hole that, that it was maybe not easy for you to see, but you can see now that it was, it was your solution to a, a different degree than just making you feel good physically. You were more than just physically dependent on these pills. That's correct. And, and, and I think, right. I think, I think, you know, we, we now know that, that, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies really sort of falsely minimize the risk of addiction when talking about these drugs to yeah. doctors and, and, and other people. Right. And, and doctors were, were, uh, were encouraged to prescribe more and more and, and apply opiates to broader uses you know, they were, they were sort of told that they were ignoring patients' pain. And, and so I think anyone that comes in contact with these drugs and takes them for, for, for some prolonged period of time uh, becomes dependent on them and, and needs to, you know, kind of manage that. Um, in, in my case, uh, in the case of other people that, that developed full-blown addictions to them, but, but certainly in my case, um, I got something more from them uh, than just a treatment of of pain, um, and, and ultimately um, felt pain when I wasn't taking them. Right, and so uh, I mean, like emotional pain, uh, acute withdrawal symptom pain, things like that. Okay. Um, and, and I, I really absolutely needed them. They were crucial for me to, to do anything, Jonathan, to absolutely do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, I'm sure some of the listeners can as well, but I, I can relate to that 100%. I mean, it got to a point where I, I really like your analogy fuel. I had never really thought of it that way. I, I literally could not do anything in life, even the most basic things, you know, if I, if I didn't have uh, the drugs I needed. So I really like to, on this show, make sure that we're focusing more on the solution to this addiction deal than, than the addiction itself, the problem, if you will. But I do want to ask, you know, I know some of the lengths that I went to in order to get these pills for myself what were some of the things that you were doing to make sure that you had your fuel? Right. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I agree. I, I think conversations like this, certainly for an audience like, like yours, uh, need to be solution-based. I, I totally agree. And I look forward to that part of this conversation. Um, I, I would do anything and everything to, to get these pills. It's important for me to, to, to explain that I was in a position uh, where I was running this, this national magazine. 
Um, I, I was earning a, an, an excellent living, so I had some money in my pocket, and and I was able to to um, to to get them, you know, pr somewhat easily for the most part. Also, it's important for me to say that that this was between the years 2000 and 2007 when doctor shopping was was a whole hell of a lot easier to do than than I would imagine it is now. Yeah. Doesn't that, that's not to say that it's impossible now because I suspect it's not. Sure. But but I was able to go see three or four different pain management specialists mm -hmm. in in New York. Um, and I would see them each once a month. Of course, they didn't know that I was, that I was seeing anyone else. So, um, and I would get big prescriptions from them, but that ultimately wasn't enough, right? As the, as the addiction progressed and I yeah. started needing and taking more and more, I needed to find other ways to get them. So I once went down to Tijuana with a ton of cash in my pockets and bought illegally a thousand Vicodin, put them in the trunk of my car and, and crossed the border with them. Hmm. I will tell you that it was a harrowing experience. I didn't realize that there would be dogs at the border sniffing around cars. And I literally had this moment and I write about this in the book where yeah. I was like, Oh shit, can dogs smell pills? Smell pills, yeah. <laughs> because I'm fucked if they can. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so here I am, like gripping the steering wheel, hmm. slowly inching toward the border patrol checkpoint. And these uh, border agents are kind of weaving in and out of the slow moving, they're on foot with dogs on leashes. And the dogs are sniffing their way around. And I was like, oh my God, this is gonna, like, this is gonna be it, you know? Um, uh, but it wasn't. And, and I was able to cross, you know, successfully back into, into California. Um, I, uh, I even, now again, back in, in the early 2000s, um, and, and I would imagine this has changed, uh, doctors could call a prescription for Vicodin into a pharmacy. Right, right. And so I impersonated a doctor and I've called prescriptions in for myself. Wow. Um, just horrible. Um, you know, the lying that I did, right, John? Like, let's be honest, right? Like, we become, we raise con artistry to its highest form. Oh, right. man. The, keeping track of the stories was just like, you know, where my mind was, I really don't know how I, I held this web of lies together, you know, and I probably didn't very well was the truth, you know. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think we think we did it flawlessly. Right. And no one knew. <laughs> you know, I, I ultimately, I'm, I'm sure the cracks were showing. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I would, uh, I would, so I would con these doctors and I would often have to come back before the, the prescription was, you know, the, the prescription initially was designed to last a month from any one of the doctors that I was seeing. Okay. I started going back to their offices two weeks after they prescribed them to me. And I would have to do this whole song and dance. No, 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 I'm traveling. I'm going on a three week trip. 
I'm going to be in Asia and Australia, or I'm going to be in Europe. And I would actually have my office print out like an itinerary from the travel agent actually wow. showing uh, a flight schedule that I would never take this trip, by the way. But I would go into the doctor's office and I would, of course, be put out by it. I'd be like, oh, you know, this is awful. I hate all this travel. I'm so sorry to bother you, but mm. my prescription is going to run out while I'm away. So I was wondering if you might be able. And, and I would do all of these things. And, and again, I would come in in a suit and tie, even if I didn't need to have on a suit that day, right? Yeah. I would, that was my costume. I would yeah. put it on because I believed that I was more convincing that way. That it was, I didn't, this guy didn't look like an addict, I thought to myself. I'm, mm. I, you know, I don't look like a junkie or an addict. I, I look like a clean cut guy, you know. The, the, the joke, of course, is that, that I was, I, like so many other addicts and people suffering with this disease, are hiding in plain sight, just like I was. So I would, I came up with some pretty elaborate bullshit to, to con the doctors out of more. I would go to emergency rooms and try to get, get pills if I was running out. Yeah. And when, when I was in withdrawal, you know, and you know, that's just like the, an awful, awful experience. Yeah. But, but what's almost worse, and, I, and I, I say almost worse, was the fear of withdrawal. So yeah. for, for, for me knowing that it was coming right was crippling yeah you know? yeah absolutely well and and i was just having a conversation with someone the other day about the the withdrawals and i remember it, i think this just speaks to how much of this is mental right it's not just the physical part because I would be going through withdrawals and there were times where I would get my hands on some pills, you know, through one of these elaborate bullshit schemes that you're describing most of the time. And I, I wouldn't even have taken the pills yet. And I would feel relief. Yes. Yes. I would feel that relief on my way to the doctor's office. Yeah. I would, if, if it was a Monday and mm -hmm. I was out of pills and I was seeing the doctor either later that day or even, let's say, on the, the following morning, a Tuesday morning. I would feel awful that Monday. But when I woke up that Tuesday morning knowing that I was on my way yeah. to get more pills, I could breathe a little easier. I, you know, had a little bit more energy and strength. And um, that's that's how, how bad it gets. Jonathan, I would, when I... If I took a taxi, say, to a doctor's office mm. living in New York City at the time, I would get out of the taxi and I would begin my charade. I would begin my con the moment I climbed out of a taxi cab. Yeah, because they're I watching. Would, <laughs> I, exactly. Because they could be watching. Yeah. And I would limp and I would drag uh, my leg wow. and I would would hobble up the stairs of this office and into a waiting room mm. where incidentally there were real patients suffering from real pain sitting there with their walkers or wheelchairs and canes. Yeah. And I would step over all of this sort of stuff and I would ease myself down into the chair like a, like an expectant mother. And, and I would wince 
and, and let out audible groans and sighs. I mean, this was Oscar worthy performance and, and, and I did it all of the time. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but listen, you know, walking into a pharmacy and getting that filled, watching the pharmacist, the, the almost euphoria of watching the pharmacist spill out the pills from, from, from the larger bottle that they get wow. from, from the manufacturer yeah. Yeah. onto that little tray to count them out. That, that was a buzz. That was a high. This yeah. is how far gone I was. Yeah, no, that makes a, a ton of sense to me. I mean, I'm really visualizing and almost like reliving this a little bit as you're saying that, because yeah, that was absolutely true for me too. So, you know, all, all these things that you're touching on, you know, you're, you're essentially running this, this magazine that's getting like great awards and you're making great money, you know, you're, you're looking good, you know, I mean, I, I've got to ask because to, to some degree, you would be what would be considered a functioning addict, right? I mean, things are, things are looking good on the outside. So I, I think that in my mind, this points out a really just part of the, what the unmanageability of this disease is really about, because it's for a long time, I think that, uh, you know, I was thinking it was just about what's on the outside, right? Like it's the job, it's the money, it's, it's how things look. As long as things on the outside look good, it's not unmanageable. But what I started to see was it's really what's going on in here and it's what's going on in here. That's, and how I feel about myself when I look in the mirror, right? That's the unmanageable part. So at, at what point, did did this kind of start to click for you that that there was something bigger going on like this was a real problem when did that unmanageability in your mind really start to set in I, you know i it, it always um set in when i would run out of pills okay. right yeah. so it was never quite frankly uh anything that i was was really Top, that was top of mind for me when I had a supply of pills. Okay. When I would run out, I would think, oh, wow, this is actually really bad. And I'm probably an addict. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, maybe I should stop, you know, and, and there actually, you know, came a time early on uh, um, in the period of time where I was actively using where I ran out and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm done. Now, listen, I said I'm done dozens and dozens of times, too many to recall, if I'm being honest. But the first time I said, you know what, I'm done, uh, I actually went to see an addiction specialist. I was prescribed these, these self-injections of buprenorphine, and they were going to help manage the physical symptoms. And, and I, I went back to that same addiction specialist and I got prescribed those injections also more times than I can count. But I, what I realize now is that I was just kind of using that doctor to manage withdrawal until I could get more pills. I didn't really want to stop. And, and, um, I was so 
this addiction had such a, a tight grip on me that I, I it, you know, wasn't letting me go anywhere. And so, um, but I was aware that it was bad and I would, I would take, I would save my biggest high of the day for the evening. Uh, when I didn't have to interact with anyone, when I didn't have to go out anymore, when I could just fully zone out or nod out or pass out. And I would take, let's say it was Vicodin, I would take 15 extra strength Vicodin and I would say, oh, it's nighttime. You know what? I'm going to take a couple more. And I would actually say to myself, sometimes even out loud, Jonathan, you know what? Like, if I take two more, that, that actually might kill me. Like, this might actually be bad. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. And, and I had, you know, I, I didn't have a death wish, not that I'm aware of. I didn't want to die. Yeah. But I was willing to. It was a price that I was willing to pay to wow. get a higher high and a bigger yeah. buzz. Yeah. And, and now when I think about that, I'm sober 12 plus years. When I think about that now, when I hear myself say that to you now, I go, holy shit, you know, like that, that's just the, the worst possible thing is to be in a position where you know what you're doing might kill you, but you're doing it anyway. Yeah. And, and that's where I found myself. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's scary. And I, I've said many times, you know, I think looking back, I mean, and it's almost kind of sick how we can like laugh about this stuff now, but yeah. You know, I, I mean, I remember thinking uh, that I wasn't even 30 years old, you know, at, at the time. And I remember thinking when I was like really in the the depths of my addiction. And I remember thinking, this is going to kill me. And I'm okay with it. Correct. And I remember thinking the exact same thing. And, you know, it's really interesting what you just said as almost like an aside, which is like, it's a little kind of um, unusual that we are able to laugh at these things, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I want to like, I want to say something about that if I sure. can, because yeah. I have said that a number of times and, uh, and it's true, right? Mm. Um, there's, there's nothing, I, and, and obviously you're not suggesting, of course, that there's anything remotely funny about this. I know that. Yeah. But yeah. I, it's important for me to say that, like, this is a horrible, awful um, affliction, and, and it, is, um, it is brutal. And when you're in the throes of it, um, it is absolutely just crippling. Hmm. Um, but when you are in recovery, and when you attend 12-step uh, meetings with some uh, frequency, which I do, you start to hear people share stories about these, you know, awful catastrophic events in their lives, these near misses that they've had throughout the course of their active use of whatever they're using. And they tell these stories and, and we do sit in these rooms, we nod, we identify, but we also laugh. You know, and, and maybe it's a weird defense. Maybe it's just like a weird thing. I don't know what it is, but we do. It's like, oh, my God, that's nuts, you know, because it is nuts. And, and I think we celebrate each other um, and the fact that we are alive to tell and share these stories. So 
I, I will laugh sometimes about these stories. And I, my book is funny at times. This is not some heavy memoir. It certainly has its moments. Make no, you know, no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. But I bring yeah. levity to it because, uh, you know, it, it was like a bad movie in some aspects. Mm. So if I laugh at or make a joke at or, or um, look back on a really horrific episode in my life, one of the lowest lows of my life, and I make a joke about it, that's, I'm not poking fun at addiction. I'm sure. not you know, trying to get a laugh. Um, it's just, I'm so fucking grateful mm. that I am where I am today. And I did so much unbelievable, almost inexplicable stuff that it is kind of funny to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I've heard people say that like that are in 12 step programs, for instance, like, man, I walked into my first meeting or first couple meetings and people were laughing and I was like, what the hell are these people laughing about? But, you know, for me, I think humor has just always been an important part of my life. And, and it is cathartic, right? I mean, to be able to laugh about it. But when I could see that there were other people laughing about these, like, pretty, like, crazy situations, I think a big part of what that gave me was hope. Like, that, the being able to laugh about it gave me a lot of hope because it's like, holy shit, like, this guy's laughing about, you know, wrecking his car six times or whatever and, like, you know, walking away with, I mean, you know, just sick stuff. They, other people would hear these things. Like my wife is used to it now and she kind of laughs at the stuff too. But like, initially it's like, why the fuck are you laughing? Yeah. What's so funny <laughs> about <laughs> this near death experience, you know? But like, but, but we've lived to tell the tale and, and um, nothing shocks me anymore. Right. So I mm. recently posted an excerpt from my book on my social media Mm -hmm. And it's this story about me being out in L.A. Um, hosting, uh, as I had to do with some regularity because of my job, hosting a, an event for like some celebrity or something like that. And I was uh, was miserable. I had run out of pills. Um, I tried. I spent like a chunk of the afternoon in Los Angeles before this event trying to find a doctor in LA sure. that would prescribe me drugs. And I just struck out at every turn. Yeah. So I had made the decision as I think many people do in this unfortunate position to try heroin. And, um, I never have tried heroin, but I definitely tried to get some this night after this party that I hosted. And I ended up getting chased by this one legged drug dealer. And, and, um, it was just like this horrible thing. And um, I can laugh about it now. Yeah. And, um, but I posted this excerpt uh, of the book on my social media. And I got all of these messages from people that are like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're okay. And sending big hugs and sending you strength and all that. And I'm like, hey, look, I'm, you know, right now today, right? Because it's a 24-hour reprieve. At least that's the way I look at it. Like, yeah. I feel great. Like, I'm the healthiest I've ever been, you yeah. know? And, and you know, I'm sober for, you know, since 2007. Um, but like what I'm realizing is that I'm shocking these people. I'm not trying to shock these people. But what's dawned on me is that I'm shockproof now. Hmm. Nothing, nothing really shocks me anymore because I feel like over the years I have heard just one horror story after the next. 
I have heard just one um, tale of an elaborate scam after the next. And, and I've heard one sort of near miss, it's a miracle I'm alive story after the next. Yeah. And yeah. so nothing really shocks me. And so I'm inspired by these stories always to this day. Hmm. But nothing makes me clutch my pearls, so to speak, and go, oh, my God. Yeah. And so now that people outside of recovery are being exposed to my stories, uh, or let's just say my story, they're having this like, you know, spit take kind of reaction to it. And I'm finding that really interesting because I'm just not used to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think to some degree, maybe everyone kind of goes through that. I mean, I don't want to say uh, recently, but more recently anyway, like within the past couple of years, like I've come out like on a different level about my recovery to just everyone. And I'm sure there were people thinking like, okay, this is like fucking crazy. You know, <laughs> like, like may maybe they knew I had a problem, but this is on a different level. Or I thought I knew Jonathan, but this is like, clearly I, I didn't. I think what you're touching on, Dan, is so important. You know, that almost being unshakable when you hear some of these things, because, you know, if I, if I go into a meeting or like if I'm sitting across from someone and, you know, they're, they're telling me, you know, this story and I'm just like, oh my God, like you did that, you know, I mean, how would that make them feel? I remember my first sponsor telling me like, look, man, like there's nothing you're going to tell me that I haven't heard before you know, and this guy had been around a while. And I was like, yeah, I kind of don't believe that. And like, when we went through, you know, my inventory with my, uh, my four step the first time around, I was just waiting for the reaction <laughs> right. on his face as I was telling him the absolute worst things I've ever done in my life. And he was just like, uh-huh. Okay. Like, yeah, I'm my, like totally yawning unfazed. almost, right. you know, yeah. like boring. What's, you know, what's next. So I, I do want to ask you, you mentioned, uh, you know, hosting these parties with celebrities and stuff like that. And I know you mentioned in your book, uh, you know, a, a moment where you met Mike Tyson. And so I, I, I want to ask you about that because I want to hear about that. I don't know the story. So tell us about that. So um, I, I was um, running this magazine and um, uh, we were putting Mike Tyson on the cover of the magazine. Okay. Now, we had, were generally putting people like uh, Brad Pitt or Bradley Cooper or, or uh, Robert Downey Jr., you know, these big Hollywood stars on the cover of the magazine. Yeah. But um, we were putting Mike Tyson on the cover of the magazine just because I found him to be like a fascinating cultural figure. I found him to be, he was certainly a polarizing figure at the time. Sure. Um, but I believed now this is me as an active addict and this is relatively still early in my, you know, uh, like the heavy days of my drug use. Okay. Um, but I believed in redemption and I believed in second acts. And, and of course I still do. Hmm. Um, and, um, uh, it was requested that I actually meet Mike Tyson. This was not normally the case. And I, and I seldom met the people that we were putting on the, on the, the cover of the magazine for any real reason, but, Mike Tyson's team had said, hey, could you go meet Mike? And uh, I was like, sure, you know, no problem. And um, he, I was to meet him on a rooftop of a building on 108th, excuse me, 118th Street in New York City, which is Harlem. 
And uh, uh, on top of that building, uh, Tyson kept pigeons. He had a pigeon coop. I've seen that. Yeah. 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 And he would, uh, he was training for what would, what would have been one of his last professional fights that he was no longer the heavyweight champ. He had our, you know, you know, he had, this is post Evander Holyfield ear biting. He had been in jail. Uh, I think for, uh, you know, for rape, there, there were things that, that uh, he was a very sort of, uh, he had been beaten down, you know, and um, I uh, took a handful of pills in the car on the way up from my office uh, that morning on my way up to see him. And by the time I got up to Harlem, these pills were kicking in. I was wearing a suit because I had a meeting that morning and it was an oppressively hot September day and uh, like brutally hot. And, and so initially I couldn't find him. And so I was wandering around Harlem looking for this building that was kind of a derelict building. And, and um, I finally sort of like reaching me, calls down to me from the roof of this building and I'm looking up at him into the hot sun and, and there's like a whirl of pigeons flying above him. It was like something out of like a horrible Hitchcock film. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm sending my guy, my buddy down to get you. And his buddy, by the time his buddy got down on the street, I was literally like swaying, you know, like I was, I really felt like I was gonna tip over. And then we climbed these creaky stairs in a building that should have been condemned to the roof. And I meet Tyson and, we're talking and we're looking up the whole time into the sun, watching these birds fly overhead. And, and I describe in my book, the whole roof of the building was like a Jackson Pollock of bird shit. It was just like <laughs> splattered everywhere. And, and here's this guy and he's super energetic and he's talking to me and I'm sweaty and I'm dizzy and I, I'm, I'm not really seeing straight. And it was almost as if, like I had taken a punch from Mike Tyson in the ring, right? Like this is what it must feel like to stand across from him. Like I couldn't see straight. And, and I was like, Hey, listen, like I got to go, you know, and like really abruptly ended this conversation, uh, which I only barely remember hmm. and, and kind of like made my way down these stairs of this like derelict building. I thought my, foot was going to bust through one of the stairs and I was going to go flying or like falling into the like basement. And I, I kind of burst out the door of this building onto the street and I just vomit right there on the, on the street. And, and, you know, this is, this is how bad it had gotten. I had gotten to a point, right. You just talked about this a minute ago, Jonathan, where like, the exterior looks like you're holding it together, right? You know, like from 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 the outside looking at looking in at me, you I thought people saw someone that was together. Hmm. You just said, oh, you were running a magazine, you were winning awards, you know, whatever, a high-paying job. You must have been a, a high-functioning addict. The reality was that I was an absolute mess. Hmm. The reality was that that as sick as I felt on the inside, I didn't really think, or at least I hoped, that people couldn't tell because I was um, trying to do this job. I was trying to present myself as a sort of 
stable, responsible, present person, even for to someone like Mike Tyson, who, let's face it, wasn't the most stable, responsible, present person in the yeah. world, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I was like, oh, shit, I can con Mike Tyson. Oh, my mm. God. You know, like, if, if, if I'm conning doctors, you know, and family members and employers, surely I can convince a train wreck like Mike Tyson that I'm okay, right? Yeah. But I, I was, I couldn't hold it together. And, and I, and so it, it really, in many ways, in the chapter in the book where I write about this Tyson experience, I think is really um, powerful for me because it shows just truly how, that the joke was on me. You know, like I couldn't fool anyone ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it had gotten so bad that I couldn't stand outside and have a conversation for 30, 40 minutes with this guy and not think I was gonna tip over and fall off the roof of this building that we were standing on. It had gotten just, listen, we talk about unmanageability, that's unmanageability. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting, you know, and I'm thinking about not moments, you know, with Mike Tyson, but but moments similar to that where it's like, by all accounts, it's a low point for sure, you know, and but my guess would be is it, you know, you started to feel a little better at some point and you just kept going on doing what it is you do. And I had so many moments like that, you know, being in the back of a cop car, being in a car wreck. And it's like, there's this moment of like, wow, that was bad. And then literally the next second, it's like, well, I need to get high again. Absolutely. You know, we have these, I'm never doing this again moments, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and by the way, we have them at different points in our lives. It could be something at, like, I just, oh man, I just ate a whole plate of French fries. Well, man, I'm never doing that again. Or you know, I'm definitely not drinking like that again, or, you know, oh man, I'm done with carbs, whatever it is, yeah. you know, with something that has a sort of a true, real kind of um, chemical grip on you, like opiates, uh, I would say I am done. I am never doing that again. I think it's a miracle that I'm alive. And, and literally, I could go from one minute to the next, hmm. just like that. And, and do it again. And I'll tell you something, Jonathan, when I finally got sober, um, my then wife, now my now ex-wife, my then wife was pregnant with our oldest child. And she discovered that I had been lying to her for years and that I was using drugs. And she did, I think what anyone in their right mind would have done. She said, you need to fix this, don't come home. I ended up going to my uh, mother's house down in Baltimore, where I grew up. Okay. And I spent two weeks down there, and I detoxed, and I went through all of the physical, the acute physical symptoms of, of withdrawal, and, and I attended my first 12-step meeting down there. Mm. And I, had, I called the doctors that had been prescribing me the medication and told them that I was a drug addict and not to, to uh, give me any pills anymore. 
and I called all but one. And after those two weeks of being clean and sober and having attended my first 12-step meeting, I got on a train from Baltimore back to my life in New York, and the moment that train pulled out of Baltimore, headed north, I called that one doctor that I didn't call to, to, tell, to say that I was an addict. I called that doctor's office. I got a prescription. It was waiting for me at a pharmacy when I got back to New York, and I got off of that train after being sober for really the first time in years. Mm. And I went and I picked up that prescription and I took pills. This is how powerful this disease is. Yeah. And it is, um, it, it will, it is not going to let go. You have to, you have to be more powerful, right? You have to be, um, he you know, healthy. And I just wasn't ready. Mm. I took pills for one more day and then I stopped and I haven't used them since. And it has not been, easy at times. Um, uh, but, but this is, this is a fatal disease, Jonathan. It, it, it really is. And, and, um, and it is a powerful disease and, and it will do everything in its power to outfox you. And so if I could sit down in Baltimore and detox and attend my first AA meeting and, and, rat myself out to most of the doctors that I was getting drugs from and still come back to New York. And by the way, I'm only months away at this time from being a father for the first time. Wow. You know, that's how strong it is. Wow. You know, I think, uh, so I went back to uh, the treatment center that, that I went through and they're regularly watching these. It's called the right stuff. So if you guys are watching, here's your little shout out, but you know, I was talking to a guy after this meeting last night, and I was explaining how important it is to keep that momentum, you know, because we start to feel a little bit better. And man, sometimes that can be one of the worst things, especially if I don't have a game plan in place where it's like, I'm going to call all the doctors, I'm going to have the meetings figured out as soon right. as I go back to New York, what meetings? Where are they? I'm, I'm going to grab a sponsor. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Have that game. Because, man, it's like, you know, when we have these experiences and then we want to get better, and, and you did for a little while, and we don't stick with it, we're not likely to keep doing those things. You know, it's like if I go to rehab and I don't have these things figured out, and if I don't take that action immediately, like, in reality, what is the likelihood of, of me waiting a few weeks and then starting to go to meetings or then get plugged into a recovery community. It's just, it is not likely to happen. Unfortunately, it's a good and a bad thing. This disease is so predictable, right? Like what, what it looks like is probably about to happen, a relapse or whatever. That's likely what is, is going to happen. You know, I think when I was, when I was uh, um, actively using, I, I read a number of addiction memoirs. I watched any, yeah, I would watch movie. I remember watching the, uh, the movie with Ray Charles, uh, about Ray Charles, yeah. uh, where Jamie Foxx plays, I think it's just called Ray. Yeah, and yeah. he sort of kicks this heroin habit, or I would read books about uh, people kind of, uh, um, you know, journeying to recovery. Mm. And, um, and it would give me hope. And it would show me that there is a path out. 
maybe I wasn't ready to take that path at the time that I was, you know, reading those books or watching those films. Um, but they, they inspired me and they, they showed me that there was a path. And I, I think if there's anything that people take away from my book, whether they are actively using or whether someone in their life is actively using a, a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend, a colleague, whatever the case may be, yeah. that, that there, there is a way out. Uh, and, and, um, so there's that piece of it. I, I also think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I really want to destigmatize this addiction. And I could say all addiction, of course, but I'm not even speaking that broadly. I really want to help to, because there are others out there, you know, kind of, I think, bravely, you know, like yourself and others, uh, and many others, um, thankfully, kind of talking about their struggle rather openly and sharing their experiences. And, and, and so I wanted to write the book for that reason also, you know, like, hey, look, I was a normal dude. You know, and um, I I got addicted to these pills, and that addiction progressed in in a pretty sort of extraordinary way. Um, uh, but I was still, you know, going out to dinner, and I was still, you know, showing up for the meeting. Like you never know who's struggling, and and um, for there to be the stigma. And, and maybe it's getting better. And, and I think to some degree it is, but I just think it's really important that we demystify what's going on here and we de destigmatize what's going on here because this is, this is impacting, you know, millions of people, whole communities in some instances. Um, but, you know, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone that isn't within a a few degrees of separation from yeah. someone who has been touched by this. Man, you took the words right out of my mouth. Like if you think about that, you know, that six degrees of, of separation, so to speak, you know, I mean, man, and it's, I, I hear it more and more, you know, it, it's, uh, and not even with people in the program, you know, people that I just know, you know, family or friends, it's like every day. And I, I think that it's being talked about more which is so important, which is great, which is great. Yeah. Which, you know, that, that conversation is, is happening and, and thank God, because it is just, you know, there are some serious multiple epidemics going on these days. You know, it's not just the opiate epidemic. I mean, I think people forget, you know, that more people die from alcohol every year, you know, and Absolutely. that's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's just crazy, but I, I really love that, man, because I think that's so important. You know, it's these are our kids. These are our, you know, moms, dads, friends, friends of friends. It's not the guy. I really like how you said it. Like you were just a normal guy. You know, and it's it's not the guy that many of us pictured like I did that's, you know, sleeping under a bridge and, and was raised, you know, uh, with a terrible um, – you know, terrible family life and all these things. Like, no, that's not, that's not what this deal is. It is, what this it, is about. it is, it does not discriminate. It is the great equalizer and it is merciless. And so if, if, 
if my voice now joining the sort of chorus of others that are talking about this can 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 help educate to even the the smallest degree people on this addiction and and um, about uh, you know uh, about this disease, uh, then I then that's what I want people to take away from the book. That like, hey, listen, like you you shouldn't be judging people like this. We should be banding together to try to figure out the most effective ways to help people like this. And more importantly, the most effective ways to prevent things like this happening, right? We need to focus on prevention, education, and treatment. And, uh, and I think it's incredibly important. So I'll use whatever opportunity I have with respect to, to, the, to the book uh, to talk about those things. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. The, the prevention let's, let's put a stop to this before it even, you know, before it even gets to this point for, you know, the next generation of absolutely of people, especially. So, but before we wrap up here, Dan, I want to ask you, what is one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation? Wow. Um, You know what, like, be, be, be as honest as you possibly can, certainly with others, but with yourself about what you're feeling, what you're dealing with. Um, you know, we, we talk about in the 12 steps, you know, we, we give out uh, 12 step programs, we give out chips or coins or whatever you want to call them. And they say, to thine own self, be true on them. And I think that that, that's really unbelievably important. You may think that you can bullshit anyone, family, a spouse, kids, parents, employers, doesn't matter. It, it's, it's when you really start bullshitting yourself that things have gotten like to a, to a very low low. And so I think just be honest about, about what you're feeling. And even now in recovery, you know, um, I have to stop and think like, wait a minute, what's, what's really going on with me that made me lash out at someone or that made me yell at my kid for no reason or like, God, driving, you know, when I'm driving and I, you know, someone kind of cuts me off or is going slow in front of me. Like, I have to take a deep breath to stop myself from, from leaning on the horn or turning into a giant asshole. And then I'll stop and say, okay, like, Dan, like, let's just like do a quick inventory check and just like, like, be honest, like, what, what's going on that's making you behave this way? So I would say, be honest. Be honest. You know, it, it's easier said than done, right? Um, uh, but, um, and I certainly don't do it um, uh, all the time, you know, but I, when I catch myself starting to bullshit people, or when, certainly when I catch myself starting to bullshit myself, it really helps keep me in check. Yeah, man, I, that is such awesome advice. And I think that's a great place. You know, that's great advice for anyone, but especially for someone that's that's new and even more so that might be going into a 12-step program because the principle behind the first step is honesty, right? And you just nailed it. It's to thine own self be true. Like I, I've got to be honest with with myself first and foremost. So awesome advice, man. 
Uh, Dan's book, As Needed for Pain, will be available on Amazon February 11th. Be sure to grab it. I'm it's excited. It's available to- now, actually. It's even available before February 11th. Oh, it's available now. Okay, we'll pick it up now. And I'm excited to read it as well. So, Dan, thanks again for coming on with me today, man. This was absolutely awesome. Jonathan, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.